Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. I think we can all agree when I say that growing your email list is hard, but it's also one of your most important marketing assets. Speaking from experience here, it's frustrating just waiting for your email list to grow without running a bunch of ads or using spammy tactics. And that's why I started using Sparkloop. Instead of hoping to get some word of mouth or organic referrals from subscribers, why don't you just equip and incentivize them to share your newsletter with others? I can say now that my newsletter growth is basically on autopilot thanks to them. Check them out at sparkloop.app EIS. You can find the link in the show notes and tell them that I sent you. On the show today is Alex Hillman. Alex is the partner of Stacking the Bricks, which produces the popular 30 by 500 course. He's the founder of the OG co-working space Indie Hall and the author of The Tiny NBA. I wanted to bring him on because Alex doesn't consider himself a marketer, but he's a fantastic marketer. He and Amy Hoy are always top of mind for me when I think of marketing digital products like courses and, and books, for example. You'll hear about the similarities between teaching and marketing, Flintstoning marketing and avoiding the temptation to automate, scale, and delegate basically everything, how he's marketing his new book, The Tiny MBA, and how to build an audience in a way that's truly helpful and not spammy or self-promotional. All right. So Alex, to start out, did you ever think that you'd be doing co-working and selling digital products for a living? No, (laughs) (laughs) definitely not. You know, I feel like I always think about I think it was a Steve Jobs quote from a commencement address. I want to say it was a Stanford commencement address where he talked about success and many things, but specifically success in anything. Doesn't really make sense going forward, but when you look backwards, there's a clear arc. And I feel like if I look backwards, there's a pretty clear arc to how I got here, but there was definitely not a objective to be doing either co-working or selling products on the internet. Mm. I started in technology. I was doing more like IT, like hardware technology stuff, and then took kind of a hard right turn into web development, but expected that that would be where my career would take me. And once again, another hard right turn, while I realized that making things on the internet was definitely what I wanted to do, Doing it for other people wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. And then entrepreneurship kind of took over. And there's a windy road through and, you know, still in co-working. And then co-working has given me a really interesting perspective and lens into not just my own business, but lots of other people's businesses too. And then I realized, oh, there's people who struggle with certain things that either I've seen other people struggle with and solve, or I can see it from the outside the way they can't see it from the inside. And then that can be a useful perspective. So like I said, I can I can connect the dots in hindsight. Absolutely not a straight line going forward. Yeah, yeah. What was the transition like going from, or I guess not the transition, but more sort of the foray from co-working to digital products? Was it that you know you were working with a bunch of smart people who happened to be sort of in that world and then you got sort of the osmosis that way or were you introduced another way? Well, my f- earliest was actually, there was an Indie Hall member who had a very successful business creating and selling really niche Mac apps. And like, he had made millions of dollars wow. selling 
indie Mac apps. Like this is pre-Mac App Store, but when kind of like the Mac developer ecosystem was really first flourishing, he was an extremely talented developer. And it was a combination of being a talented developer and just having a real good sense of what people wanted from a Mac app. And he would, it was like, there was a period of time where Mac apps were one app that did one thing. And so, you know, it was the one that got really big while he was in Indie Hall. He built one of the most popular DVD rippers. Interesting. And so when DVDs, you know, DVDs were still big. This is pre-Blu-ray. He had built an app that you put your DVD in and it would click and it would basically do an image of the DVD. So it wasn't like download and compress. It was full resolution, all the DVD extras, and it was an archiving tool. The idea is you're using it to back up your own DVDs. That was the way it was sold. Legal gray area because it can be used for piracy as well. But I watched Jason build that product, build that business, and I was fascinated by it. And my first personal brush with it was we did a deal with the folks at, I want to say it was Mac Update or something like that. We're running a bundle of a bunch of indie Mac apps. And Jason, who ran this this product, came to me and said, hey, you want to work with me on this? I need somebody to sort of like manage the business relationship and help with some of the marketing and things like that. And I guess he had seen in me the way I handled Indie Hall and thought that I would be good at it. And that went really well. And then maybe another year or two later, he decided he wanted to sell that app to somebody so he could put his energy into creating something new. And I got involved in that that business deal as well. So no one's actually ever asked me that question before. I never thought about like, what was my first real brush with digital product? And that was definitely it. Working with him and a few other people at Indie Hall. I also watched him collaborate where he's like a really talented programmer, but he was not a designer. And so there was another Indie Hall member who was a great interface designer and designed both the Mac app itself, really iconic dock icon. You know, that was a period of time where like your dock icon really was a big deal because it's what's going to show up in screenshots and things like that. Yeah, so that was really, really fun. Fast forward, and at this point, I was already friends with Amy Hoy, my business partner now, but we were not business partners. And her and her husband, Thomas, had started a software company making what is now called NOCO, their time tracking software. And so I had seen that too. And it was over a visit. I was visiting her and Thomas in Vienna over the holidays. And we were just sitting around the kitchen, drinking schnapps and talking shop and realized that you know her and Thomas had built this software business. I had created Indie Hall and then had all of these like other little business ventures attached to it. And we had a bunch of other friends who were also really talented, creative people, designers, developers, writers, videographers, things like that. And they were hopping from, you know, startup job they hated to corporate job they hated back to another startup job they hated, occasionally going and raising a bunch of venture capital to create another kind of business that they hated. There's just like a bunch of really talented people couldn't seem to triangulate whatever we had. Hmm. And we kind of asked ourselves, well, why is that? What do we see that they don't? What are we doing differently? It's not that we're smarter necessarily. It's that we've seen something and... I think Amy had her perspective in business early on before she and I ever linked up. And I had some of the perspectives that Indy Hall had, had sort of shaped in me. And that was really where it was. The goal for that was not to create an info product business. It was to help our friends. And then we 
realized, oh, our friends are representative of a much larger pool of people with creative skills who want to learn this stuff. And maybe there's something here. Hmm. That's awesome. We'll go back to Stacking the Bricks, Indie Hall, a bunch of other sort of ventures and things to go to. But I want to fast forward to the present. And your latest book is The Tiny MBA, which is one of my favorite new books. And I just love the entire thesis behind it of being like the anti-business book, the anti sort of cliche, you know, book sort of packaged all up. And it's just sort of these really quippy, short collection of business wisdom, essentially. I don't know. You probably have a much better way of describing that than me uh, as a consumer. (laughs) But to my understanding, the Tiny MBA was started as a tweet thread. And I can't remember if I read that tweet thread when it first was published. And maybe it was about a year from now. But is that true? Like, did it really come from the tweet thread? That's exactly what happened. I had decided to participate in this challenge on Twitter that a few folks had posted. A couple of my friends had sort of taken this challenge, which was really sort of a like a, a thought exercise in communicating th- a bunch of ideas. It wasn't so much about big ideas. It was, can you create a bunch of something? And so the way it worked was if you you, you would create your sort of first tweet in the thread and say, for every person who likes this tweet, I will reply with a idea or strong opinion or perspective on a thing. And you get to choose whatever the thing is and encourage you to choose something that you think you know a lot about or have strong opinions about. And I was like, well, I'm going to do this about not just building businesses, but building businesses that last. And started down that path. And once I got through like the first seven or eight of them, I realized that this might be harder than I thought it would be. (laughs) Cause I go in and I'm like, Strong opinions, I've got those. But then you realize that, you know, when when you've got the constraints of a tweet, 280 characters, and you're trying to communicate something that is meaningful and impactful, you kind of have to keep having to cut it a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller. Like, what is the most indivisible version of an idea? And in some cases, that means that that idea now gets split out into three, four, or five tweets. And as I went, they kind of emerged into clusters around an idea. What's interesting is not only did the tweets turn into the book, but the order that I wrote them in is exactly the same order that they are in the book. Mm. And when we were editing, they are edited, like they've been edited for context and clarity and things like that. But when we were editing, we thought about reordering them or grouping them into like chapters or collections or something like that and decided against it because there was something about the fact and the way that they kind of came out of my head, the way they built on each other, that felt different as soon as you start rearranging them. And so we decided to, to keep them in that order. But the other thing that was kind of cool about the composition on, on Twitter was the constraint plus doing it in public. And so very, very quick, tight feedback loop. You think about writing a book and you're probably thinking about writing something in a Google Doc or something like that where you don't get feedback until you explicitly ask somebody for it. With this, basically every sentence, as soon as I hit tweet, I'm asking for feedback implicitly. And so I got to see what's resonating. I got to see, you know, not just what people are you know, liking and retweeting, but the replies that come to it. People saying things like, oh, I never heard it said that way. That makes so much sense. Or I wish I'd heard this way back at the beginning of my career, those kinds of things. And so that was motivating to continue the thread 
but it also gave me a sense of what people were connecting with. And then I basically finished the thread on Christmas Eve and I kind of joked that it was my Christmas present to my Twitterverse. <laughs> and then we went away for the holidays and went on vacation and came back almost two months later and tweets and clusters of tweets from that thread were still getting action. They're getting likes, they're getting retweets, they're getting comments and quote tweets and all those kinds of things, including things that said, you know, this thread is more valuable than the last several business books that I read. And I have to take that with a grain of salt. Naturally, it is Twitter after <laughs> all, but it, I had never seen something have the kind of staying power that this thread had of my own work. And I said, maybe there is something here. And started thinking about what it would look like to package this up and what format might people actually want to digest this in and what would make sense. In a way, without realizing it, we were also applying some of the core fundamentals of the 30 by 500 process, the course that Amy and I teach to help people create product businesses. One of the things that is the most counterintuitive that we teach is that the product format comes last. You start with audience, audience understanding, you figure out what the problems are, you create fixes for those problems. And then the very last piece of the process is what we call fix storming, which is combining the ways that you solve the problems, the way you get them from a problem to a solution, combined with methods and formats. And so the method format piece of it really is at the end. You can't choose that until you know what you're trying to get them to and who they are. And so if I look back at the process of creating the tiny MBA, and granted all of this is you know, this is post hoc. So I, again, everything only makes sense in reverse. I wasn't following the playbook because I sat down and open to what, what page of the playbook am I on, but I was following our own playbook of the thread started because I know who my, my followers are on Twitter. I know who's out there. I know what kind of questions they ask. I know what kind of problems they have. You know, I wasn't just tweeting whatever came to mind. I was thinking, what are the questions that I get the most often? What are the questions that, that people don't ask? and then find themselves in sticky situations. And then we have to get like, often I get the question, well, what's the question they could have asked to avoid the question they're asking me today, mm. those kinds of things. And then just kind of put it all together and then see like, well, what do I have here? And so it becomes more like, I don't know, the analogy might be a little more like sculpting, where instead of trying to build up a finished product, I kind of create this big lump and I've kind of got to shape it down into a thing that actually makes sense for the people who might want to buy it, might want to use it, might want to have it on their bookshelf or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, Twitter really is a instant feedback loop and whether you like it or not, people are going to give you their opinions, their questions, alternative trains of thought. And so... All so true. <laughs> I think the fascinating part about Twitter as well is that most people don't use it this way, but it can either be something that you just output and then it's just sort of your, you know, stream of consciousness and, and whatever, or it can also be your input. How did the, the, the tweet thread, the way you use Twitter inform the way that you thought about creating the book? I know that that's the last step of the process, but at the end of the day, you decided to basically package up the tweet thread. And so why did it end up that way? We'll start with why a book. On one hand, like the, the simplest answer is also not terribly interesting, but it's like, I don't think people would buy a PDF of my tweets, even though the book technically is a PDF of my tweets. We've done a lot of work beyond. I mean, I wrote those tweets in, what did I say, three days in several sessions. 
it was another six months of you know design revisions writing and rewriting the other pieces around it really kind of crafting the experience around it i think that's the key is you know, what is a book a book is not just a physical artifact people buy books to have an experience mm. and so i started thinking about why did this twitter thread work the way that it worked and one of the really interesting things to me was that you don't have to read the whole twitter thread to get a useful thing out of it and you also don't need to share the whole Twitter thread to share a useful thing out of it. And so the one sort of self-contained thing at a time allowed it to spread in a way, even though it was a hundred ideas that are tied together in a way, any one of them becomes an on-ramp to the other 99. And depending on the one that a person reads, that resonates with them in that moment for whatever the reason is, that's their motivation to share that one or a few of them. And then that gets in front of their audience and then they go, wow, that's really good. Wait, this is part of a thread. And then they go and they explore the rest of it. And I thought that was really, really interesting. Generally speaking, I wouldn't wanna read a book as a Twitter thread, but if a book was a bunch of individual ideas, the ability to interact with the individual idea, I do think is a really interesting experience. So. We started thinking about, well, what would it, what would make sense as? We didn't just go to book, we went to physical book. That is another kind of unique thing about this project. Amy and I have published all kinds of things. She wrote an ebook called Just Fucking Ship that is about, you know, starting and finishing the projects that you start. And it's done very well. It's sold tens of thousands of copies. We hear from people every single week about the impact that it's had on them. But a physical book is different. And not just because it's physical, it's because it's going to take up space in someone's real world. And having a physical artifact, I think just kind of changes people's relationship with the information. And the fact that the book can sit on their end table, their coffee table, the edge of their desk, under their computer monitor, they can kind of keep it at arm's reach. And when we started thinking about, well, what do I want these 100 ideas or lessons or prompts to do. It's not that I want people to read them. I want them people to reread them. I want it to revisit them. I want you to kind of treat the book almost like a Rorschach test or, or a magic eight ball where you can open it up and, and get something. And the way it resonates is less about the book and more about you. And if I had sat down to create that, I think it would have been much, much harder. But once I realized what we had, I realized that a paperback book made even more sense because it's much easier to just like, randomly flip open to a couple of pages and find yourself in, in a place. Whereas an ebook, you can, technically can, but it's just not quite the same experience. Mm. So the, the shift from Twitter thread to book was all about kind of guiding that. And one of my favorite stories from the creation of the book, and we went through a, a bunch of parts ever, you know, first was kind of coming up with the overall aesthetic and how do we make it so each page doesn't just feel like two sentences and then the rest of a blank page. Give it a little bit of intention. And then certain things had additional, we wanted to add recommended reading. And so, you know, a page can be an on-ramp to more reading. People will find value in that. And it was about a week before we were actually sending the books to be printed and shipped to our pre-sale customers that we had gotten a little bit of feedback from beta readers which was overwhelmingly positive, the closest thing to a negative wasn't that they disliked the book, it's that they felt surprised, that they opened the book and they expected it to read like a book and sort of go, you know, have a narrative story arc. And when they got to the parts of the book where it's one self-contained page at a time, it's not that they disliked it, 
but nobody really likes feeling surprised. It felt kind of disoriented was the, the vibe I was getting. And so about three days before we sent the book to the publisher, I rewrote the foreword with the goal of kind of erasing that feeling of disorientation. And I didn't realize where I had kind of gotten the inspiration to do that from until I was talking to somebody after the book was launched and definitely borrowed a technique from a comedian named Hannah Gadsby. Did you watch her comedy special? No, uh, but I know who you're talking about. I've, I've seen clips and bits of her before. So she's very funny, but she became very famous for performing what a lot of people, she got a lot of criticism that her comedy special wasn't really comedy. There were parts of it that were very funny, but it, there were parts of it that were tragic, that were horrible to listen to. It was, you know, about abuse and growing up gay in a very conservative part of the world and, and rape. And it's like, it was, it was not funny, haha funny, but it did what humor in intends to do. And so, I don't know, she drew a lot of criticism for that, became sort of this international phenomenon for it. And then in the last year, she came out with a new special. And in the beginning of the special, she says, I don't know what you all expect from me, because that last special was kind of weird. This isn't that, but I'm not sure how to tell you that. And so what she did was she spent the first almost 10 or 12 minutes of an hour long special, which is a lot of time, by the way, describing the beat of the show. She was telling you what jokes were coming without telling you what the joke was. And her, the premise was, I don't want you to be disappointed. So if I tell you what to expect, you can't be disappointed, which is very clever and in itself very funny. Yeah. And the delivery was amazing. I highly recommend everybody go, go, I mean, watch both of her specials. The new one is called Douglas. And so I wasn't thinking of it consciously, but in hindsight, I can connect the dots between these and say, if people are feeling disappointed by getting to a book and realizing like it's one or two sentences per page, one of the easiest ways to mitigate that is to make sure that you tell them before they get to that page what's going to happen. And then we added in a couple of other additional pieces where I said, well, here's why it's that way and here's how you can use it. And how you use it is totally up to you, but here are a couple of suggestions. And the feedback that I've gotten from that truly last minute addition to the book, which for me was all about really thinking about the experience. I mean, I don't know if people think about user experience the way they do in software in designing a book, but that is very much what we were going through mm -hmm. is if people come into your SaaS and are disoriented, that's going to affect the way they use the rest of the SaaS. People come into a book and are disoriented. In some cases, that's by design. Like, especially in fiction, sometimes the goal is to disorient the reader. That is part of the emotional experience that you want the book to deliver. That is not what I wanted to deliver. I wanted a book that gives people confidence. Mm. I can't create a book that gives people confidence if within the first 15 pages, they're like, what the hell, this isn't a book? That's not going to work. So that was probably the most interesting thing that Again, I don't think we could have gotten to that if we didn't put the book together the way we put it together, have, you know, I don't know, like 20 or 25 beta readers read the book beforehand, and not just to get testimonials, but to really get a sense of, you know, what do you, not not what do you like about it, what don't you like about it, but like, what was reading it like? What, what how did it make you feel? 
is a weird question for a nonfiction author to ask their readers, but that's what I was asking. Mm. I was asking, you know, what parts are resonating? How are you feeling while you're reading it? Is there anything that you that really stands out to you and you're still thinking about a few days later? Is there anything that you felt like was missing? And to get that from folks who I know, or at least know a bit more about, as well as some strangers, I'd say the strangers is the scary part. Like sharing with people always like afraid of sharing with their friends because they're worried about their friends judging right. them. Your friends are always going to be nice to you. It's the total stranger on the internet who you're giving explicit permission to tell me what you really think because I really want to hear it. You know, sometimes this stuff stings in the, in the moment, but it, if you treat it like an opportunity to say, okay, that's a very real experience. Is there a way for me to adjust that? Is there a way for me to compensate for that? You know, they're helping me see my blind spots. I have to be grateful for that. The question then is, is what do I do with it? And it seems like some of the stuff we do with it has created the experience that we intended for far more of our readers. Yeah. So I'm really happy with that. Yeah, I think the, the important part there is that you were seeking the truth, right? You're not just putting out the book as sort of uh, going through the motions and saying, okay, here's an early version, tell me what you think, but not really wanting the feedback or not really wanting the truth. You actually were seeking the truth. And then even, I mean, from what I picked out from what, how you're describing it, it wasn't explicitly clear that it was disorienting and that people didn't like the format or that they were maybe surprised in a negative way, but you had the sort of the foresight to see through that and say, okay, I think that this is what's going on here. And I think we need to make an adjustment. Yeah. The funny thing was the people who had the closest thing to a negative comment still said they really liked the book. Mm. So it wasn't that the book was bad. It was that there was a gap was kind of what I saw. It's like the book is not fundamentally flawed, but there is a, there is an experience that they're having, which I need to figure out exactly what is causing that. Where, where could we address that? Again, treat it like a design problem. And yeah, they're not gonna they're not they're not gonna tell you, hey, I need instructions on how to read the book. Nobody right. would tell me that. And it's very very weird to have a book that tells you how to read this book. But that's exa exactly what it seemed to need. Once I realized that people expected the book to be one thing. And then we're surprised for it to be another thing, even if that surprise was not inherently bad, but it was enough to make them feel like they'd wished they'd known that sooner. Yeah. So I'd love to walk through a couple of my favorite quotes from the book uh, and maybe riff on a few and sort of maybe if you can unpack a bit great. of them. I'll start here because it is my all-time favorite quote from the book. And then we can kind of roll through a little bit more chronologically. But you said, if done well, teaching and marketing can be nearly indistinguishable from each other. Could you explain that a little bit and describe what was going on in your mind and also what you really mean by that? Well, I think we have to start with what people think of when they think of marketing. And I think when you say the word marketing, a lot of people imagine a broadcast or a bullhorn. And that's not inherently wrong, but it's like the really smallest slice of the pie. Marketing is a lot of things, a lot of activities, but I feel like the broadcast piece of it gets all the airtime and it's the smallest piece. The more interesting question in my mind is, is what earns you the ability to, have, to broadcast in the first place? Mm. Having a Twitter account ain't it because you're shouting into the ether if you have no followers. So why do people follow you? Or if we're talking about an email list, you know, you want to send emails about your new articles or products or features or promos or whatever it is, 
that only works if there's somebody on the other side listening. How do you earn that person to be a part of who you can broadcast to? And there's no one right answer, but if, if there's a short list of things that work the most consistently, I think education as a path to trust is at the top of the list. Hmm. Having a bunch of Twitter followers or having a bunch of email subscribers doesn't really matter if those people don't trust you, right? Because you can't ask them to do anything. They're always going to say, well, why? Why would I do that for you? What evidence do I have that there's something in it for me? And so you have to demonstrate that and earn that trust up front. And again, there's no single way to earn trust, but education, I think, is the one thing that most people have access to that will reliably earn them that trust. Because if you come at it from the perspective of how do I reach the people who want my product or service, that only works when the timing and the stars align that you broadcast something about your product or service in the moment that they happen to be wanting your product or service. Mm. And just statistically speaking, those odds are not in your favor. And so what the best situation to be in is one where they know you and they trust you before they need something from you. So that in that moment when they do need something from you, you're the first person on their list. The best way to create that opportunity, to create that experience, is to be someone who has helped them before. And the most cost-effective way to be someone who has helped someone before is to find out something that they want to know, something that they want to do, something that they're trying to do and struggling with, meeting them where they are, and showing them how. Hmm. And that can take infinite forms, whether we're talking about a written article, a recorded podcast, a how-to video. I mean, if one of my favorite examples of this is there's a reason why how-to videos are the biggest category of video on YouTube. And it's why it's some of the most effective marketing that you can create. Like I've been doing a bunch of research in the last couple months on Twitch streamers and just the entire ecosystem around live streaming. And there's a few people that I've started following. And I realized that the kinds of ways that they make money these, these streamers, these creators, is very much around the fact that they've created trust with their followers, with their subscribers, by answering their questions, by teaching them best practices, by showing them behind the scenes, by building a genuine connection through teaching, that brands who are selling stuff are the ones who come to them and say, hey, people trust you. If you give an honest review, and our, uh, the product has to be good, right? right. If you, the second you shill a product that's garbage, you lose all the trust that you earned, and that's never worth it. But it's really interesting to watch people do a variety of things with trust once they've earned it. And that's where I think f things like brand building and personal brand and all that stuff gets kind of muddy because if the people that follow you, if the people whose attention you have figured out how to get don't also trust you, the ability to convert that attention into action, let alone commerce, is very, very small. And there's so many people who, you know, they've got massive Twitter followings, but when they publish a tweet that asks people to go do something, nothing happens. Mm. It's been fascinating to me with the tiny MBA, just as the most recent example of this, two people with over 100,000 Twitter followers each, which one generates more sales? Mm. And it's been consistently the one who is constantly there for their readers, the one who is constantly sharing knowledge, teaching, earning their trust, and demonstrating their credibility 
And when the time comes to offer something, one tweet turning into tens or hundreds of sales within minutes. That was the other thing is I, I watched people with massive followings generate near zero sales across dozens of tweets over the course of 30 days. And I watched a person with the same size following publish one tweet and sell 50 books in 30 minutes. Huh. And then I, when I saw that, I was like, hey, do you want to do like a giveaway or something like that? We did another 50 in six minutes. It was unreal. And the difference between them is one person's out here being a thought leader and the other person's actually teaching. Hmm. Really, really like, critical difference. It's easy to get attention being a thought leader because people love the quippy shit. But to earn the trust and credibility with people that when you say, hey, I've got something and it's really good, you should check this out, that they go, well, everything else you've shown me before has been really, really good. I bet this is gonna be even better. And that takes time to build. But when you think of that as an asset, that's where you can stop thinking about like a follower count or a subscriber count. And this is where we talk about with, you know, the, the email lists that people build using the methods that we teach in 30 by 500. There's a lot of ways to grow an email list. Many of them will convert, you know, list to sale half a percent, hmm. maybe 1% if you're lucky. In the email marketing world, people talk about 1% conversion rate list to sale being like shoot off fireworks, the most incredible thing you can see. And we see three and a half to 5% as a baseline, seven to 10% as super achievable. The lists might be smaller, but we've built them through educational content by teaching the reader and making them go, that helped me once. I wonder if they've got more for me. And once you've proven as a pattern that every time you send somebody something, or at least the majority of the times you send somebody something, that it's helpful for them, you've now established that as a pattern. That means you've earned trust. You've earned that credibility. And so long as you protect that credibility and deliver continue delivering consistently, that's where it goes from them knowing that you exist and that you have a thing available for them to them knowing that you exist, them being so excited that there's a new thing from you. And there's also like the reciprocity effect. I think the reciprocity effect is like a trailing effect, not a leading effect in this case, mm. where it reinforces the, oh, it's a paid thing. Well, I've gotten tens or hundreds or thousands of dollars worth of value from the free stuff. I feel really good about paying and possibly even paying a premium price for the thing that you're offering with a price tag attached to it. So if you think about marketing through the lens of education, I think it puts you squarely at the bullseye of trust. Lots of other marketing works, but might not get you to the bullseye of trust. Education does. Mm. So... You can do the other stuff, but when trust is the most valuable asset for converting to a sale, I think that's a, a, a universal fundamental truth. Then anything that gets you less close to the bullseye has got to have other advantages, other good reasons to do it. Otherwise, I'm just going to put all my energy into the, the education. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's similar to one of my favorite concepts from Toby Lutke and Shane Parrish, and I believe it's been mentioned a few other places, but he has this idea of the trust battery where essentially you can sort of plug in any kind of concept, but in this case, marketing is essentially the act of charging the trust battery with your audience and then, you know, using a bit of it, you know, or draining a little bit of it and then 
but constantly recharging it, right? Because you don't want to completely drain that trust battery and then have nothing to use left over or not charge it at all in the beginning, right? You're just trying to use a dead battery essentially for the analogy. And another one of the quotes that you had in there was most people pay way too much attention to things that do not matter to their customers. Things like press, awards, drama, and hype. Try auditing who and what you're paying attention to and then cut two big things that you've let distract in the past. Um, I'm curious how that kind of parlays into this concept, but also, you know, what was going on through your mind? Like what, what was kind of the, the backstory behind that one? I mean, the first time that I remember really being aware of that dynamic was sort of in between my IT networking career and getting into web development. And sort of the place where I got into web development was the advertising world, the agency world. And the agency world is super into awards, almost as much as like the film industry, right? And TV and things like that. And I realized very quickly that awards serve a purpose, but it's got very little to do with customers. Mm. Awards are more about internal morale, you know, your own team and helping them feel like they did good work because often, you know, you put all this work into an advertising campaign, but nobody knows who actually did the campaign because it's all about the client's brand. And so it's a way to sort of show the team, hey, you did great work. That campaign you worked on, it won an award. It's also kind of this way that agencies position themselves against each other. Right? So agency credibility among other agency owners is awards. But the people who those awards matter to the least are the, the customers and the clients. So as soon as I realized that, I was like, huh, I wonder where else that happens. And now, you know, fast forward to today and I look at, you know, people chasing upvotes on Hacker News and Product Hunt and stuff like that. And it's a similar thing where it gets you the ability to put that badge on your website, but that badge is really only a mark of credibility among the other makers, among the other people who put stuff on Product Hunt and a very, very tiny slice of people who spend their days, you know, trawling Product Hunt for basically like the early adopter people who love just playing with new toys may or may not overlap with your customer base. And even if it does overlap, it's unlikely to be the vast majority of your customer base, even representative of your customer base, if that matters, if that makes sense. So I think people get caught up in external validation and feedback because they want it or need it at all, but they don't really think about how, where they get it from affects them or their momentum or their decision-making or their ability to get more of it when it runs out, kind of similar to that, that battery effect. Like motivation is also not this like singular point in time. Motivation is a thing that happens at the very beginning and then you build the thing, you make the thing and you got all this momentum and then all the momentum builds to launch day. And then post launch is when most things fizzle out and die because they put all the energy before the game even started. Mm. And in this case, you're putting all the energy into something before the game even starts, and then you're basing your decision or your emotions on how to continue based on a feedback loop that generally doesn't really matter. So choosing your feedback loops and learning how to get that external validation if you need it from places that actually matter and learning how to index it correctly. You know, I'd rather have a small number of people who are actually my customer giving me useful insights about what they're doing with the product or how the product is affecting them and their work and helping them achieve their goals than having hundreds or thousands of upvotes on product hunt. And you, if you zoom out, they're 
objectively the same thing, right? It's some external thing telling me that I'm on the right track. But I think that everything about society, honestly, I mean, think about all, you know, going through school, everything we go through from a young age, school, college, job, I do a thing, it's usually something somebody else told me to do, I do the thing, and then I have to go to that person for a pass-fail. Did you do it or not? Did you do it correctly or not? And so it's really drilled into us that my next assignment will come from somebody else, mm. and that somebody else is the only person who could tell me whether or not I'm on the right path. Rather than learning to look at the situation and then ask the questions ourselves, is there evidence that I'm on the right path? Even if it's a small amount of evidence, and it only gets me a tiny bit further down the path, if I can learn to work with that rather than constantly chasing some external validation, my ability to keep momentum is higher and is greater because I'm not relying on things that I'm not in control of. Somebody else being the right person to talk to, somebody else having a, a useful opinion, somebody else having the time to truly evaluate the thing and give me the kind of insight that I'm looking for. Those aren't things that we're in control of. All we're in control of is what we see and how we respond to it. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of hard to unlearn lessons, but it all comes down to starting with what are the things that you pay attention to that paying attention to them has not gotten you what you want. Scrap it, cut it out of your life whether it's to make room for something new or to simply remove some of the noise so that you can find the signal among what's left. I think both are valid, viable, and likely possibilities, but you won't know it unless you cut out some of the garbage that ultimately might feel good in the moment, but in the bigger context, in the bigger picture, is really just a distraction. Hmm. Yeah, justify or rationalize some of those activities and you know awards or things like that as possibly brand building or as it's it's part of the brand or it's an important but you actually have some interesting thoughts on brand versus marketing you said brand can be a valuable business but creating a brand is not the first step to starting a business and i was curious what your thoughts are on like the difference between brand and marketing and sort of when this whole brand building idea comes into play yeah i think a brand is how people perceive you and if you're building a perception before you're building a thing to be perceived, you probably have things out of order. What's interesting is, is once you've done things and you have the opportunity to be perceived in a way and you maintain integrity and you do those things consistently, you keep showing up for those customers, you will earn a brand. People try and define a brand as like a slogan or a tagline. That's not a brand. A brand is what's in their heads about you, not what you tell them to think about you. Right. Right. You're not Coca-Cola. This is a di completely different kind of concept of brand. Coca-Cola has a brand in the, or, or Nike or, or whomever, where for them, brand means some latent memory. Like they're in your persistent awareness. Like you know they exist. And so they spend money just to make sure that you don't forget that they exist because you will go buy a Coke, right? You will go buy a new pair of Nikes. For the vast majority of businesses out there, I'm not just talking about like solo businesses, for the vast majority of all businesses, brand is the result of your actions over time. So do things and do them consistently, and that's your brand. Mm. 
And what's cool is, is your brand and your product are not the same thing either. You can build a brand and within that brand is, again, how you're perceived and who perceives you that way. But that means you can, over time, add new products or services that align with that brand. And it will actually work because, well, I should say it will work if the people that you're trying to reach are the same people with whom you've done things for in the past. So I think a lot of people think this brand is this abstract thing, and I think it's because we see it from the advertising world traditionally. You know, the, the company that buys a Super Bowl ad and you have very little in common. When we think about branding from a, biz, a, a business perspective, I think the, the valuable thing to think about is, is let's do the marketing to earn the trust, earn the attention, and then be able to deliver things to those people. The brand is, well, how do those people perceive you after they've received one or more things of yours, whether those are free things, paid things, things like that. So long as those things remain in alignment, you're probably on a path to success. Hmm. You can create more products, more services that people go, oh yeah, that fits with what I've seen from them in the past. That reinforces trust, right? Recharges that trust battery and makes the, the odds of a sale better. It makes odds of word of mouth that much better. If you divert, like diverge from that pattern and it's unexpected, you have the potential to undermine it. Mm. So again, now we're back to sort of the beginning of the Tiny MBA as a book is like, you have to notice that ahead of time and go, are we doing something that is out of the norm of how people perceive us? That's not inherently a bad thing. You are not painted, painted into a corner, but if you do it and it's surprising in a negative way, then that is likely to undermine your brand in terms of what people think of you. They think now think of you as something that's a little less reliable. But if you tell them that something is coming and you tell them why and you tell them how it benefits them, not just why it matters to you, then you can widen the brand, you can diversify the brand, you can invite more customers of more kinds into the brand. But that only works when the brand is not this abstract thing that came up in a boardroom, a slogan or a logo, that's not branding the, the, the way we're talking about mm. it. It's, I think it's the, the hard part, but ultimately the useful part is having a practice around listening to your audience and your customers, not just when you have something new to sell them, but all the time and to really get a sense of where they are because I mean, th the brands that, you know, what is the, the, the line that you know, people buy from brands that they know and trust, people are typically resistant to an unknown brand that they don't have any trust with. If you are a brand that people don't trust yet, well now, well, now we're back to the education question again. So it's like, well, what do you do to earn that trust? Is a slogan or a logo gonna earn trust? Is it gonna tell them that you get them? No one sentence is gonna tell an audience that you understand who they are. Your actions will. So when I think about brand, I think it is about those those actions over time. Yeah, so, and speaking of actions over time, one of the other quotes in there that I loved was, to avoid over-engineering and wasting time, try flintstoning everything before you build big fancy systems and automations. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, first of all, what is flintstoning? Because it's it's a amazingly fun concept that I love. And also what are some of the marketing activities and actions, things you can do to to build trust that you think are important to Flintstone at first? 
Yeah, so Flintstoning is definitely one of our, I don't think we necessarily coined that one, but I know Amy has a great article on Stacking the Bricks that sort of describes what it is. And the idea is a reference to the cartoon, The Flintstones, where all of their sort of tools were, there, there were tools, but they were manual. Like even the car, you the way you drove the car was you stuck your feet through the ground right. or through the floor and, and kind of pedaled that way. So... I think, especially if you have maker skills, especially, I'd say especially programming, but really any kind of maker skills, the tendency is gonna to be to sort of imagine a perfect system and then to build that system the way you imagine it and then put it into the world and then sort of iterate and evolve and, and do those sorts of things, which isn't inherently bad, but it also creates a lot of upfront work on a thing that you don't even know is going to work. One of my favorite new flintstoning techniques, and this gets us also into a little bit of the meta around marketing the book. One of the most common things that people do right now when they're starting a new product or venture or something like that is they put up a landing page and put an email capture on there, which like, let's be honest, today is really easy. Tools like ConvertKit or LeadPage is like, oh, that's fine. And some of those tools are even free. And we use all of them as well. But I tried something new with the Tiny MBA that I, I was inspired by the crew at 37 Signals, now Basecamp, when they launched their new email tool, Hey, where there was on the landing page no email capture form. What they did was if you wanted access to the beta, if you wanted early access to the, the software, you sent an email to I want at hey.com. And they even took it one step further and they said, tell us about your relationship with email. Which when I saw that, I was like, that is so smart. Because you're not only getting people to write in with their email address, you're getting what you know is a valid email address, but you're getting them to talk with you, to start a conversation, to use their own words. And if your tool is about email in your inbox, asking people about their relationship with email is, if your goal is to open up a can of worms, that's the topic (laughs) right there. And I can only imagine across, you know, I think they had, you know, tens of thousands of people sign up for that waiting list, people telling them stories that they can then turn into the headlines and the way they describe the features. And, you know, knowing what I know about that team, I don't think it necessarily shaped the priorities of the product, but it absolutely shaped the way they talk about people because it's the way the customer talks about the problem is the way the customer wants to hear the problem be talked about. Mm-hmm makes it so much more resonant. And so I was like, wow, this is like not just Flintstoning for the sake of skipping over automation. Like this is Flintstoning that creates an opportunity for context and research that the automatic version doesn't do. And you kind of have to build back in. But, you know, other, other good examples, you know, I'm a huge fan of Zapier as a tool in business because it kind of lets you pick a a piece of software that does one thing well, and then you can link it up with other pieces of software that do its one thing well, and without needing to write any code, kind of shuffle information back and forth and stuff like that, which in my opinion, we end up with better systems than sort of these one size fits all kitchen sink type programs. So I think thinking about on one hand, it's when I say Flintstoning, it's it's prototyping. It's sort of like prototyping, but it's not necessarily prototyping for the customer's benefit. It's like prototyping for myself. Before I build a fancy dashboard, I'm going to collect a bunch of information into a Google Sheet, and then I'm going to maybe build some graphs from that to just, just even figure out what it is that I want and if it's useful. Because the alternative is a bunch of programmer time, which even if I was the programmer, is still very valuable time that can be put into other things. And I think for me, Flintstoning is doing the thing that you're not 
certain will pay off in the fastest, cheapest way possible so that you can be certain that it'll pay off and then you make it better. Then mm. you bring on the developer time to improve it, those kinds of things, or you, f you fill in the gaps. And the reason for that is not just to save time and money, but it's to recalibrate your priorities. And th the stuff that needs to be Flintstoned most often is stuff that's gonna be real fun to build, but is not gonna benefit the customer at all. Mm. Most internal stuff, Canon should be Flintstoned, at least at the beginning. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I love Flintstoning and the just the thought, like you said, of instead of just thinking about of in terms of how it benefits you and reduces time, reduces work, improves efficiency, but it also creates a new opportunity to build trust with customers, to start a conversation, to create an experience that's new and unique and surprising in a positive way. And one of the things we mentioned earlier was seeking the truth and trying to look for things, even though it might sting a little bit. And one of the other quotes I wanted to bring up was, if you mostly attract lousy clients or cheap customers, I have some bad news. You're the common threats. You probably, you're probably doing something to attract them. Could you talk me through a little bit, like how can people avoid attracting lousy customers and sort of what's the inverse of that? Yeah. I love when this one lands for folks because it's often for one of two reasons. Either they've found their way out of this and they're like, ooh, yeah, I know exactly what that means. Or they're still in the thick of it and they feel very seen. <laughs> so I think there's a, there's a couple of different versions of this, but one of the most common ones that I see is people just pricing their product lower, especially, you know, a new product, new on the market. What's the easiest way to compete? Be cheaper. And that's true to a degree, but being the cheaper product comes with hidden costs. And I think one of the things that folks don't calculate in who have not run a business before is it's not just that, you know, let's think about it from the perspective of customer support. It's not just that every customer is going to need some amount of support and a, f a free or very low price customer. It's, you know, that's going to eat into margin. It's that the lower the price, the more demanding those customers tend to be, the less forgiving they tend to be, the nastiest they often tend to be. The one they're the, going to be the ones who are going to tell you, you know, I'm leaving if you don't build this one feature for me. Whereas conversely, the higher dollar amount customers, the, 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 the actual professionals, we'll call them, are often happy to pay. And in fact, if they see a smaller price, they perceive that as perhaps not, not trustworthy. They'd rather pay more and never have to talk to you versus the person who wants to nickel and dime and is going to make sure that they're getting every penny's worth out of it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I think what people don't think of pricing as a tool for choosing who your customers are, but it absolutely is. Premium pricing is not about greed or better margin. Premium pricing is about positioning yourself for a customer who you actually have the ability to help because they want to be helped, right? They're yeah. willing to invest in themselves. I can give you another concrete yeah. example that's somewhat uh, attached to price, but is also attached to where where the audience comes from and what kind of expectations they have. So we're about to do a experimental deal with a fairly large platform who brings a very large audience and they wanted to feature 
our flagship course 30 by 500 as part of a, a promotion that they're doing, which is good for us in, not just in that it helps us bring in more sales, but it helps us be in front of more people. That from the outside looks like a good thing. Mm -hmm. However, I don't know a whole lot about the audience that they typically attract. And even though it's very large, based on my preliminary research, it often tends to be folks who are less sophisticated, who are often looking for a quick fix, right? So in the case of 30 by 500, which is about teaching people how to start businesses and product businesses, there's a whole internet full of people who teach how to build a business on the internet that we are technically in a peer group with, but they're all selling quick fixes and, you know, on the spectrum of, of scam, I would say right. it is weird to run a business that is anywhere even near that spectrum, but we know that it is. And we work really hard to remain credible, to demonstrate that what we teach is also hard work. This is not a get rich quick. This is just a system that if you, use it will save you from wasting time on work that doesn't create any results and have you focus all of your energy, however much energy you have, into doing things that actually do work. One of the concerns that we have about this promotion, and so we had to kind of put some, some boundaries on it, is what happens when the customers who are often, you know, the online buying online courses to learn how to build a business audience show up and are now mixing mm. with the 30 by 500 audience which is way more creators and makers who have tried to build businesses and struggled there's an overlap in that venn diagram but there's way more people who are outside of one from the other and and it's not even about being able to charge a premium for our course. It's about, I'd rather ha be attracting customers who I know are likely to be successful because it affects our student morale. When students come into our chat room and they see a different kind of language or a different kind of behavior that will affect their willingness to put in the work, do the work, share their work in the chat room and keep other people motivated. So there's an entire ecosystem that could potentially be disrupted that we've worked really hard to keep forward facing and aligned mm. with you have the creative skills, you just need to learn the marketing, sales and business. If we go too far in the direction of anybody who wants to build a business online, we undermine, we run the risk of undermining a lot of what we already have for our existing students as well as future ones. And so I think it's it's an interesting time to be thinking about this question that you asked because we're we're looking at this as a as a calculated risk. And you know, one of the ways that we're solving for this is when you sign up for this version, you don't get the chat room, right? We may down the road after interacting with because I have no idea how many people are even gonna sign up from this promo. We can always add the chat room as a promotional upgrade once we've had a chance to interact with this customer base. But my read on this customer base being so different, it's not, again, they spend a lot of money. There's a lot of money to be made here, but if that earning that money now short-term undermines our credibility and our ability to help help our students and make money long-term, that short-term money is not worth it. Yeah. So yeah, it's some complicated calculus to run. And I think for us, the key here is, is, is there a way for us to acknowledge the concern, which is something that a lot of folks already don't do, and experiment in a way that 
caps the downside, it sort of mitigates the risk. You can't avoid the risk entirely. But if we do this right, we can mitigate the risk and determine is the risk as much or as little as we thought it was. If it is, then we made the right decision. And if it's not, then we can always add more value to those folks. And they'll be like, oh, cool, I get an online community too as a bonus? Amazing, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I wanna move on to a couple other topics and maybe we can sort of roll into the meta marketing of the tiny MBA. Can we walk you through and just kind of give me a behind the scenes peek at like what it's been like pre-launch, launch, now post-launch and sort of marketing as a whole for the tiny MBA? I think the pre-launch was fairly standard as far as launches go for us. The only real twist was that email in rather than email capture based pre-order list that we built. And I will say what was really kind of amazing about that was not only did people actually sign up using it and similar to, I imagine the, the crew at Hey, I got, you know, emails from folks, everything from so excited for your book to specific questions that people had or people asking about are certain topics going to be in it, those kinds of things. I also had the ability to then when launch day came, my original plan was to download all of those emails, the, like the email addresses themselves, upload them into ConvertKit and send out a, hey, it's launch day, come buy the book. And then I realized I had an even more valuable asset, which is I could reply to the emails that they sent me. Mm. It was their subject. It was from an original email. I'm now not going to get caught in their, you know, bulk or spam, whatever it is. I'm reply, replying from a real email to an email that they sent me. This is like fast track to the inbox and also likely fast track to their attention. That was my theory was if I replied directly to the email they sent me with, hey, book is live. Here's how to go get it. And here's how you can help promote these early adopters would actually act on that. And of the 330 or so people who had written in over the course of about 10 days before the actual launch day. It's, t it's tough to know exactly what the conversion rate was, especially because we were still doing Amazon Kindle at that point and there's no, I don't get to see who actually buys there, but the conversion rate was high, like way over 50%, even conservatively. The amazing part was how fast. Mm. So I would go through and it was a, it was a copy paste email that was in the reply, but the first sentence or two, depending on how well I knew the person, if I knew anything about them at all, I'd customize it a little bit. It would take me about an hour to do a hundred emails. I was getting time from when I hit send to when they purchased the book under 30 to 45 seconds. Wow. <laughs> it was so fast. And not that that's the most important metric, right? But that was genuinely shocking to me. I'd never, we, we've done a lot of email based launches and it feels really cool to hit send on that email and convert kit and all of a sudden the sales start rolling in. Like, you know how that feels. It's awesome. Yeah. This was different in part because I was sending every manual email, but in also in part, the vast majority of them were buying right away, mm. which is pretty incredible. Other than that, the rest of the launch followed a pretty standard pattern of what I like to think of as like pulling back a slingshot. Right? You have to kind of pull back that rubber band, build the momentum, build the anticipation. So sharing screenshots and things like that on social media. We didn't actually do a lot of teasing on the email list. I want to say there was like one or two emails that went out in the month before. And it was actually in a, in a PS. It was a tease that I was working on something. But the momentum that was built up kind of began being released in that initial core of pre-order folks who had emailed in and then I replied to them. And a lot of them also helped spread the word. And so those initial 300 or so folks turned into over a thousand within, you know, within a week or so, which was, which exceeded my 
my expectations. I was very, very happy about that. Hmm. Where things get really interesting has been the enduring sales. We have obviously products that have been on the shelf for a long time and things like Just Fucking Ship as a great example, that book, can't we publish that? It was Thanksgiving 2014, I want to say, so six years. And that had its own launch event because it was actually, the book was written in 24 hours. And so like the creation of the book was its own marketing in a way, created the book using the principles in the book to create and ship things. And we've done other promotional events, whether it's our Cyber Monday, Black Friday sale, or we do a summer sale, or like JFS is one of our go-tos for doing promotional stuff because it stands on its own. It's a great entry-level product. It's a great entry-level priced product. It's, it's just a really good on-ramp into our ecosystem. But we've never done, there's never really been a strategy of what do we do to make it so that JFS makes sales every single day. And except for in like the tail end of a promotional period, JFS doesn't make sales every day. Across all of our products, we make a few sales, you know, every day, but that's that's not really the pattern we've ever had. And so Tiny MBA has been this kind of new space to experiment with, well, what kind of systems can we build up? And so some of the things that I've been working on the most are podcasts, as it were. I had a conversation about a month before launch where I reached out to some friends in the publishing industry, the traditional publishing industry, and I said, you know, during the coronavirus when people were normally doing book tours and things like that. Like, what are you seeing in terms of book promotions? And they're like, nothing. Everyone is really freaking out. <laughs> like, wow. haven't, like, there's been no innovation. Everyone's just kind of stuck. And I was like, that's shocking. <laughs> Genuinely, I was, I was surprised to hear that and a little worried that maybe I had picked a bad year to launch a book. And then I realized, well, we'd have never needed in-person events to sell other stuff before we do online events, quote unquote, all the time. So I could do like webinars and stuff like that. And then I realized that you know podcasts are probably a, a great medium for this and this conversation as an example of it. Unlike many other book tours where an author is going to go on, you know, maybe dozens of podcasts and every single one is them talking about the core lesson of the book through the lens of that audience, I've got a hundred lessons to pull from Mm. and you get to help me choose them or your audience gets to help me choose them. So every interview has been a little bit different. And when I realized that every interview could be a little bit different, I also realized that I could then pull the episodes from all these shows that I'm visiting. I'm calling it the tiny MBA podcast tour. When you publish your show, I'm able to take a core snippet of it that doesn't repeat stuff that I've said before and bring that back to our audience and build our podcast back up again. And so I think between the podcast that I'm guesting on and then bringing this now, I think I've got like 25, almost 30 podcasts total recorded. We've published 10 or 11 since the book came out. And and I've got this back queue. You know, that seems to be one of the biggest drivers of ongoing sales. And because of how podcasts are listened to where any one podcast is an entry point, but then there's a possibility of them bouncing around and binging others. We've sort of created this cluster of, you know, opportunities for people to bump into the topics, the themes, and the lessons. They listen to a couple episodes. They go, you know what? Every lesson I've heard here sounds useful or interesting, or several of them have. I should go grab a copy of this book. I get to do that with our own audience without constantly beating them over the head with it. As they enter into our ecosystem, increases the odds of them bumping into it without me having to hit them over the head with a promotion for the book. And I'm out 
into the real world, which is something that, frankly, Amy and I have not done a lot of other than a couple of key watering holes where we're active. This has given me the opportunity to do more relationship building and bridge building into other people's you know, audiences into their ecosystems and stuff like that. So it's it, it's meta, both in the context of all the lessons that we talked about in this episode. You know, my goal is to show up to every episode and teach something useful. Hmm. Ultimately, I want you to, I want anybody who listens to any episode that I'm on, whether they buy the book or not, to hear something that sticks with them. And there's been a few people who have reached out and they said, I, you've shown up now on several podcasts I listen to, every one the lessons have been different. Like to them, me being on more than one or two podcasts feels like I'm everywhere. Right. And it's really interesting how little it takes to be perceived as that much bigger or that much everywhere. Like I am everywhere in a very, very tiny subset of reality. <laughs> if if you were in my audience and I've done a good job, then it feels like everywhere you turn, I'm there. What I'm trying to do though, is have it be a little bit different from when uh, an actor is doing a press junket and they show up on every talk show and they're just talking about how great the movie is. The book is gonna be part of the skeleton of the conversation, but ultimately if you don't buy the book, that's fine. My hope is that you now know about me, you know about me and Amy, you know about our work, and maybe you skip right over the book and go straight to something like 30 by 500. Or you skip over the book, you go listen to the podcast, you spend 40 hours with me listening to the back catalog of the podcast, and then who knows what, like, so I think just keeping a long view on this book and saying the book is sort of a tool to spark conversations, build bridges, experiment. One of the other things that's gone pretty well has been giveaways, especially like giveaways and promotions, especially with newsletters. So finding folks who have a newsletter where there's a, you know, an audience overlap and doing something where you know, there's a an action they want them to take. For one person, they're like, well, I want them to leave a review on my podcast. Cool. Another person did almost like a newsletter quizzo where they asked a couple of questions and the way to get an enter into a, to win a signed copy of the book was to answer the questions. You have to answer them correctly. And then if you answer them correctly, you're entered into the drawing to win a signed copy. And what's fun then is we can then go back to the list, announce the winner, and then everybody who didn't win gets a discount code. Mm. It's again, it's a win, win, win. I'm showing up to a person who's got an email list. I'm like, hey, here's a cool thing for you to do with your list. They get to bring something valuable to their list. Their list gets to you know participate in something or benefit, whether it's through the, the giveaway or the discount. And I'm getting to connect with folks who I wouldn't have necessarily otherwise gotten to do it. A lot of the long-term promotion stuff I'm looking at through these lenses of, you know, how can I satisfy it so myself a partner and their audience, everybody's getting something out of it. Mm. If we can only satisfy two out of three, it's less interesting and probably less sustainable. Whereas if it's doing all three, it'll probably be good this time. And there's a long-term value that can be that can be seen long beyond the promotion of the book. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I love the way that, that you've thought about it and sort of all the intention that's gone behind the marketing and the promotion of the book, right? And, and being able to keep that trust. And to sort of start to wrap up here, I'm curious if you could maybe share a couple of marketing examples or campaigns that you admire or point to as something that others should model after. I'm sort of my, my swipe files sort of section here. But since you have, I think, good taste in marketing, you are uh, well connected within the marketing community. Do you have a couple of examples off the top of your head maybe that you could point to? So the first one that comes to mind before I mentioned that I've become a little obsessed with like Twitch streamers and stuff like that. And there's a Twitch streamer who 
has a pretty big presence, both with streaming games, but also sort of the meta stuff of like helping other streamers grow their channel and grow a business around streaming. His name is Harris Heller. And Harris Heller's got the Alpha Gaming YouTube channel, I think it's called. Mm. And so I've watched a lot of his videos and he's really, really good. But he did a thing earlier this year that I thought was so interesting and so smart and so long-term thinking in that, and it's also something that someone who's outside of the industry never, never would have thought of. So he launched a thing called Stream Beats. And Stream Beats is a new business for him that offers free and royalty-free music that you can play while you're live streaming. Because that's a big problem in the live streaming, especially if you're uploading videos afterwards to YouTube, you get a copyright strike, they take it down, you can't monetize. Copyright-free and royalty-free music for that world is a big problem. Hmm. So earlier this year, he invested money that he had earned from streaming in his YouTube channel to hire a bunch of producers and create a bunch of playlists of completely free and royalty free music to play while you're streaming as background music in a few different genres there's like an edm one there's a hip-hop one there's like a, a house one and i thought i thought that was interesting but i was like why would he do that what's what's the motivation here and i realized that there are two one is although you can go and download the files like if you don't have a spotify pro account you can actually go download the music files and play them straight from your computer. But he's banking on lots of people streaming these from Spotify and Apple Music. And for people that are streaming for, you know, three, four, six, eight hours a day, mm. these are all two minute, two and a half minute, three minute tracks. So he's getting paid a Spotify royalty on all of that. And I was like, what a long play. That's so smart. Wow. And then I realized there was another layer to it in the fact that a lot of streamers that do play music in the background also put something in their overlay of a what's playing now. And so in a stream where the music is playing and he's being paid a royalty on some large percentage of those, he's basically also inserting a free ad for the service, for the music, where people go, this music's really cool, what is it? I wanna listen to it while I'm working, while I'm streaming, while I'm playing games, whatever it is. They go, Stream Beats, what's that? They search for that and they find the playlist as well as all of his other stuff. Wow. And I was like, it was one of the most complete and well thought through ecosystems. It's, I mean, cause in a lot of ways, it is so akin to like the educational content marketing stuff we were talking about before without being an educational content piece. The similarity is it's there to solve a problem for the for the person in your audience. Mm. And it's a big painful problem they know they have. So it's not just I'm gonna give you music, it's royalty free, copyright free. You can play it anywhere, including on YouTube, and you won't get taken down. Solved a big problem and he's using it to make money and promote all of his other products and services. That's only possible by somebody who deeply knows the ecosystem, deeply knows their audience, deeply understands the business of it. And this is also not something he could have done at the beginning of his career. I think in a similar way, I couldn't have done the tiny MBA at the beginning of my career. Mm. It's the kind of thing where you you build a bunch of things up to it. I think it's, it's a really interesting like mid-career play where he's reinvesting both knowledge and money earned from some of his earlier endeavors into something that is like the next step function up. 
And it's interesting because your, your question was like, you know, what's a, a swipe file, a marketing play? Because this doesn't look like a marketing play from the outside. Right. But I think the reason I'm so fascinated by it is because it is both a product and a marketing play. It's a full ecosystem play. It's so holistic. And in the context of the tiny MBA, remember the, sub, the, the subtitle of the tiny MBA is, you know, it's not about business. It's about the long term of business. This is such a long play. Mm that I'm I'm super inspired by it. I don't know what it translates to in terms of my own work, but watching it work and watching it show up in places and and he also got you know the timing right. He he did this earlier this year about a month or so ago, Twitch just announced their own copyright free music service that I got to watch him then go back and talk about everyone saying, "Oh, Harris's stream beats is out of business. Twitch is, you know, going to put him out of business." And he goes, no, they're just making every streamer aware that copyright-free music is a thing they should be seeking out. And if people want other alternatives, which they will, Twitch is going to spend all the money to market this as an answer to a problem that people know they have but didn't realize they could seek out this answer. Now that they know that this answer exists, they're going to go see, well, Twitch has an option. What else is out there? And what's the first thing they're going to come across besides Twitch? Harris Heller. That's so smart. So, so smart. Genius. I love that. That's a great example. So I'd wrap up here with my last question and sort of what I call my, my Guy Raz question. For all the things that you share and the audience you've grown, the trust that you've built over time at scale, how much would you attribute to luck and how much would you attribute to hard work and your own sort of work ethic? I mean, I have to be honest and say that luck plays a big role, but I'd also reframe luck. I think there's an element of, of privilege for sure. Well, I didn't necessarily have the privileges of, you know, a family that could write me a check and float me for a year while I was figuring out what my startup was going to be. You know, I didn't have those kinds of advantages, but I had plenty of others. Even just the advantage of growing up with an entrepreneur in my family. My dad was an entrepreneur. And so mm. the idea of entrepreneurship was in my head for much longer than a lot of people get to experience it and through a completely different lens. So I think that... When I look at things that way, you know, when I say I want to reframe luck, absolutely some luck to it. But I think a lot of it also comes down to opportunity and perspective being met at, at the right spot. I think where I've been able to manufacture luck has been learning the skills of pattern recognition in business, which, again, is really what the tiny MBA like if I had a book like the tiny MBA when I was early in my career, I would I would have different pattern recognition now because I w would have learned a lot of this through the book and spent my time and energy <laughs> observing maybe other patterns. There's no, no way to really know in an alternate timeline. So and I feel like part of it is that what's the quote is like, you know, luck is opportunity meets preparation. Right. And I feel like a lot of my luck is that. It's what on the outside looks like right place, right time. But other people were in the same right place at the same right time, but they saw something different. And so I won't say that it's hard work. Although I've worked hard, I don't think my success is because of hard work. I'd say my success is because I've played a long game. My success is because I didn't just jump on the opportunity that was right in front of me. I, I ran the the chess board a couple of extra moves. And I could only do that because I had some pattern recognition under my belt. Mm. I watched other people struggle or do things that seemed hurtful or harmful and go, well, why did that happen? Why did they make that decision? And how can I avoid that for myself? Or how can I avoid that for other people? How can I create an opportunity where that problem doesn't even show up in the first place? So I don't know, sort of a, a sideways answer to your question, but I think that's kind of the point that I don't think it's necessarily luck or hard work. I think those are factors, but I don't think either of them are the major factors. I think a lot of it comes back to a sense of 
and an ever-growing sense of awareness of what's going on and being willing to, like so much energy put into observation and asking, why is this happening? What's going on here? Mm. How does this challenge my own assumptions? Where am I wrong? What am I missing? What are my blind spots? That's the hardest work. Like making courses and products in a co-working space, that was fun. That was not hard work. Worked a lot, but that's not hard work. Hard work is inside work. Hard work is work on yourself. Hard work is realizing this thing I've been doing in a certain way for a long time doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. Or worse, it was working, but it was creating problems or challenges or mistakes for me or for other people, and I didn't even notice it. To recognize it, shoot, I am responsible for mistakes that were affecting somebody else and not me, and I didn't realize it till now, and I gotta not just undo it, but I've gotta deal with the secondary effects of a decision that I made. That's hard work. I think that's work that a lot of people need to do, especially in business. And if I'm if I let myself be optimistic for a minute, the the day before the 2020 election, <laughs> it's hard to be optimistic. I feel like we're more ready for that work now than we've been in a long time. Mm-hmm. So my hope is that you know the work that me and Amy and the Tiny MBA and you and your community are doing is challenging people to step back, re-examine, and say, if doing this work matters, how do I make sure that the impact is positive for more than just me and more than just the people that I'm used to it being positive for? Is there anyone that it's negative for? How do I calculate for that? That's hard, but it's important. That's worth it. Yeah. Well, Alex, this has not been hard work for me. It's been a pleasure, and thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Uh, Likewise, it's been a fun conversation. I'm excited to have a chance to connect with you one-on-one like this, and more, more good stuff in the future. More good stuff. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Alex for spending his time with me. Super generous. If you can, pop on Twitter and thank Alex for me for sharing everything in this episode and let him know what you thought. Also, make sure to pick up a copy of The Tiny MBA. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. And here are my big takeaways from our conversation. At the core of marketing is earning trust, and trust can't be bought, it has to be earned. We each earn the privilege of getting in front of someone to make an offer. Also, to be a community leader, you first have to be a community member. Community status is earned. You have to engage and participate and help out and give back before you can expect anything in return. So remember this the next time you go to a Facebook group to promote your latest new thing, whatever it is. And it was also fascinating to hear about how he studies Twitch streamers and the genius of that free library that Harris Heller created. This is the kind of stuff that the podcast is all about and is a great example of how you can learn from other industries to better your own marketing. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com slash membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.